0: Welcome to Consumed, the podcast about people who eat things, drink things, think things, and make things. So, you know, everybody. I'm Jamie Lewis, and this seventh season, I speak with folks across California from Chico to Santa Barbara, Humboldt and Grass Valley to Los Angeles, but always at the heart of it is the Central Coast. I hope you get to hear them all. Thank you for listening. Many thanks to my friend, James Onaveros for supporting the work of this podcast. James is the force behind the family of wines known as Rancho de in the Santa Maria Valley. And because all of our friends in the food and drink industry need a boost right now, I'm going to talk about how you can get your hands on some of his wine this winter. For the holidays, wine is the perfect locally made, handmade gift that directly supports those who work to produce it. And for January 1st and beyond, Drinking beautiful burgundy inspired Chardonnay and Pinot Noir is the perfect way to celebrate what we're all hoping is a kinder and gentler year. Visit the website for information on how to order Rancho de wines, which can be shipped or delivered to your porch for free if you live around Santa Barbara County. To see what's available and to make your order, visit ranchosdeoniveros.com. Cheers! Consumed is also sponsored in part by Slow Life Magazine, which has been sharing the stories of the San Luis Obispo community for over a decade. I write the food column for Slow Life, and most recently I covered dishes made from ingredients that aren't always common here on the Central Coast. I'm considering writing about Bow steamed buns for the next column, but what do you think? Hit me up on the contact page at letsgetconsumed.com with your ideas for what to cover next. And if you want Slow Life Magazine delivered to your door every other month, visit slowlifemagazine.com. I'm always drawn to people who like to dive deep into a subject and learn everything there is to know about it. This is also one of the defining traits of so many people in the hospitality industry, and Nikki Giusto is no exception. Nikki is a fourth generation miller and bread baker with Central Milling, which is something of a cult grain business. Seriously, almost all the geeky rustic bakers I know work with central milling flour and nothing else. Nikki joined me from his home in Petaluma, California, where he works, but the company is actually based out of Utah. That's where central milling began over 150 years ago by Mormon homesteaders who took grain very seriously. They brought the farming and Nikki's Italian family based in Northern California brought the milling and the baking. The partnership has been a fruitful one, especially recently during the days of COVID when so many of us decided to try baking sourdough. Learn about Nicky's early days in his family's bakery, the magic and mystery of fermentation, his travels to win the World Bread Cup on Team USA in Paris, and what it's like to have a baby in the midst of a pandemic. Listen in with me and Nicky Giusto. Nikki Justo, thank you for bearing with me. We've had technical difficulties this morning. You've been very patient, so good morning.
1: It was all my pleasure. <laughs> awesome.
0: And so I know you already answered this in our test run. We'll call it um, testing one, two, but you woke up at 3, 3.15 in the morning.
1: Something like that, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that.
0: And I asked if it was because you were baking, and you said no, it
1: was because? Managing my insomnia.
0: Is that a, a thing for you?
1: For me, yes. Yeah, it has been. I mean, I had a quite an active imagination and uh, uh, it's just the time where I feel most productive and most, uh, you know, uh, what's the right word? I'm lucid in my thoughts, but like uh, free flowing in in ideas. And you know, I really have no uh, no roadblocks in my thought processes. Then it's just kind of like, I just kind of a, I guess kind of like a writer's flow, but just with my imagination. Um, I'm not only a baker; uh, I mean, that's the core of what I do. But uh, we have; uh, I also manage a lot of um, uh, components within our company. Mm -hmm. Um, Like our, our, I'm basically, I mean, I'm our sales manager uh, for the entire Central Milling Corporation, um, and I oversee a good amount of employees there. And our distribution services as well, um, plus all our marketing efforts and web sales. So there's always like something I'm kind of scheming, dreaming and uh, having to pay attention to.
0: Which is massive for a company that is really undergoing from what I can tell. I wouldn't say a renaissance, but, but a boom. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. On the retail side of things, like we've always had a nice, steady... Um, curve of customers coming in on the the organic flour front um, from an industrial level um, uh, from small bakeries all the way up to you know large industrial facilities but uh, since covid um, came into all our lives uh, the retail market has definitely um, taken a lot of our time uh which is good I mean we have the capacity to do it it's just and we are set up to do a certain amount of retail um, so we do co-pack for a lot of uh, large uh, supermarket chains uh, nationwide um so we are set up to do retail but it was just kind of dealing with the ebbs and flows of that and plus the the consumer side of things um from our web web sales
0: because you can because people can buy it directly did you ever have a point where you had to tell people we just don't have it you have to wait no. Okay, that's cool.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there uh, was some specialty items, yes, um, and it wasn't because we didn't have it; we just didn't have the bandwidth to get it packaged and out mm. the door in a timely manner. Mm. You know, so we were just kind of handling a core group of uh, products, and we never had to mm. say no to those things. And even our large customers, like, um, you know, big retail chain X nationwide, you know, said, "Hey, we need another," or, you know. 20 truckloads of flour, you know, next month, can you do it? It's like, okay, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, so oh we always gosh. need a little bit of mill capacity in there just for, um, swings and production. So. Yeah.
0: Tell me how this all started. Central milling is, is considered, um, something of a gold standard for, for serious bakers and, um, something like that doesn't just happen. So where did it begin? It's a family thing, right?
1: Um, yes yes and no um so there's uh our family story the, from the juxto's perspective and then there's um the central milling story and our our paths crossed a couple times and then we finally locked into each other um so it's a it's a complicated um bit of a soap opera of a story but, Cool. um uh so the central milling um Was built in 1867, you know, in a certain milling flour. Then, as part of the uh, the Mormon migration um, and settling of Utah, Um, and that's when this mill was built. Plus, our uh, one of our other mills, which were called Gilt Edge, which is about 20 miles north of our central mill in um, in Logan, Utah. And um, the Mormons uh, out of Salt Lake would go settle an area, and what they would do is, you know, Joseph Smith would say, "Go and." You know, build a temple and then go build a flour mill or two in a certain area and then once those two things were there, you know, then uh, the church would send people to go populate that area, farmers and so on to, to, to get everything up and running and then settle it. Um, so two of our mills are from this era um, and I mean they're really old facilities that we've mo- of course modernized to modern food safety standards. Um, an increased capacity, but uh, essentially, I mean, they were built as stone mills, but then in the 1890s, they were converted over to roller mills, um, and then um, uh, essentially, that they're identical from that period, you know, in flow and how they operate, um, minus some uh, modern technology. So instead of like bucket elevators that carry the, the the grain up and down, we have pneumatic systems, so it's air that blows things through now.
0: But it's the same facility.
1: Same facility, same mill, stands, same uh, uh, flooring. I mean, like everything is is old.
0: And you, and and so, um, if you don't mind me asking, are you Mormon? I had no idea this was going this I'm direction. Not, no, okay, you're no, not.
1: Okay. So, a number of our partners are. Yeah. Um, at the, uh, uh, the our Utah side of the company, and then uh, there was the Justo influx when we uh, basically got together uh, in the '90s. Um, and your
0: your last name, I, I mean, you're Italian.
1: Yes, my great-grandfather came over from Italy, uh, from uh, Cocoletto, Italy, um, in uh, 1919. And he came to San Francisco and opened a bakery and a health food store in San Francisco.
0: Wow, so these two, um, uh, you know, migrant lives between the migration of the Mormons out west and the Italians... Um, you know, to the U.S. and then all the way to the West. And your father coming over in 1919, great-grandfather coming over then. That's an interesting intersection. How did those two migrations intersect?
1: Um, So in the late 60s, early 70s, um, my grandfather, my great-grandfather's son, um, was on the search for higher protein, you know, stronger, but higher quality wheat. So was, we had our bakery going in San Francisco, uh, which at the time was called Juicedo's Vitagrain um, in, at, at this era, before it was called Golden Haven, or excuse me, Golden Crescent um, Health Food Store. And then that turned into Justo's Vitagrain. And then um, uh, my grandfather was on the quest for the highest quality baking ingredients that he can get his hands on. Um, And in California, um, the farming, you know, the agronomics of things, the farming of wheat was starting to decline a little bit because water was starting to go away. People were starting to plant um, uh, higher yielding or higher yielding monetarily, crops, things like that. So um, we had to go further and further to find wheat. So he was looking in Montana, Idaho, and Utah. And then he met a man named George Perry, um, actually through a phone call. Um and um they started a relationship. So Al Justo and George Perry and George Perry um is uh the father of a couple of a couple of our partners now. Um and uh, they started a relationship then so uh, George would sell wheat to my grandfather to make our breads down in South San Francisco in San Francisco and um and then that relationship just kept going and kept going and blossoming and blossoming. Um And then fast forward to the 90s, um, the owners of Central Milling um, were gonna sell the mill and um, uh, Kent Perry, which is one of George Perry's sons, put together an idea to purchase this mill and got his brothers involved, uh, his cousin, um, my grandfather, and my uncle involved all in the kind of investing side of the thing to get this thing up and running because the Perry side was the farming side of things mm-hmm. and we were the, uh, the milling and the baking side. Mm-hmm. So we got together and purchased this mill and then continued the legacy of central milling. So it never shut down and never... Uh, shut its doors or anything and we just sink a bunch of money into it modernized it and um, so we can continue uh uh, milling and selling or the highest quality organic uh, flour that we could um, produce so it's always a focus on the quality of the ingredient first that was always the hunt and then um and then everything else just like the sales and everything just kind of happened naturally because mm. people were just seeking out people like my grandfather were seeking out um you know higher performing consistent organic product and of course in the 70s early 70s and late 60s the word organic didn't exist it wasn't a thing yet yeah. and um but that's just how a lot of these mormon farmers grew because they're good stewards of their land you know they're not you know, they don't want to put chemicals on their land if they don't have to. You know, right. they just kind of grow naturally and grow, and work, work with nature to, mm-hmm. to grow the best grain possible. And so it just kind of, the philosophies just aligned mm-hmm. this way. That is so and cool. So, that is yeah. so
0: cool. And so uh, I'm thinking in the, if you're talking about the 90s when this hap- when this, you know, merger sort of happened. Were you an adolescent at that time?
1: I was... Boy, yeah, I was, how old was I, 16, 17, 16 or 17, yeah. At this time, um, so our company, or we still, our family still had Juicedo specialty foods, Juicedo's juice Juicedo's specialty foods. Um, the bakery was still active. The bakery was sold off around 97, mm. um, so then we stopped actually making bread at an industrial level. Um, then and then focused on uh, blending, packaging, um, and ingredient sourcing, and distribution of high-quality ingredients. Um, and then that's when the re- the real relationship of central milling and Juicedo's really kicked in because central milling would make all the flour hmm. and put it in a Juicedo's bag,
0: hmm. um,
1: and then and that would be sold um, through our South San Francisco facility. Yeah.
0: So you're watching all this go on. Um, or I mean at the very least you're watching the baking happening through juice and you probably you know grew up with I'm imagining with the scent of bread in the air constantly is that true
1: yeah yeah when I was young I mean I mean really young too we'd go to the bakery and be poking around the dough getting in the guy's ways eating the brown sugar out of the bins you know and like you know, doing everything a kid does and um, then on to the distribution side um, you know it my dad would go in and, you know, I'd come in and work, help him work in summers. And, um, oh, well, eventually in high school, I would do that. But before then I would just run around and mm-hmm. like, put my footprints all over the bags and all the warehouse guys would be shooing me away and teaching me how to drive, uh, you know, some of these, uh, work <laughs> yeah. and it was a blast growing up in this, in that world for sure. Cause then, I mean, it was true, a true family business. I mean, it was like all the members of the family worked there and, um, you know, and it was just that environment. There wasn't a lot of, you know, safety things, you know, being paid attention to, you know, a kid was running around, it was like no big deal, you know, or yeah, two, and, um, hanging off of, you know, some of the racking and like using it as monkey bars and just getting sure. lost. In the place. And it was, it was a total playground for a young kid, you know, it had this huge warehouse just full of racks and bags and things and places to hide. And I mean, it was a magical place to have a ball.
0: Yeah, and did you grow up in San Francisco? Am I understanding that right?
1: Uh, it was in Pacifica. Um, oh my, yeah. My father moved down there um, after shortly after I was born. Yeah, I was born in Marin County mm. and, and moved down there. Um, and then, in when I was about eleven years old, I moved up to Nevada. Mm-hmm. My parents divorced, and so I lived up there. Um, and then, kind of, I was distanced from the bakery a little bit um, at that point, but. Um, around college time, I would still do some work, some design work for, cause I wanted to try to find a different path, you know, cause that, I mean, before me, all the generations were, you know, had to go to work because they needed to support the family business and, you know, work in the bakery, pack cookies, you know, or whatever it is, make deliveries, um, you know, finish off blends, uh, pack pancake mix. And, um, but um, I was the first generation um, that's, didn't have to do that. Mm -hmm. So, um, Mm -hmm. so my grandma encouraged me to go do other things. So I um, went to school for design, graphic design, and um, I would do some work, you know, for specs sheets and product ads and things like that, you know, just during the summers um, in the early years of my designing. Um, And then, but I always baked. I was always like a home baker, like baking my own bread like that during this whole time too and And tinkering the whole time not I wouldn't call it tinkering it was be more of it was definitely a hobby yeah you know it was definitely a hobby I was just to do it because I grew up around it and you know my dad would send me boxes of flour and (laughs) you know use these things and I just knew how and um it wasn't until I I moved to England um to get a master's degree in design there. So I went to a school in Reading, England and where I realized that the the one I was super broke, you know, and so I had to like make my own food or like try to scavenge food wherever I could at this time, because I mean the the pound was two to one to the dollar, you know? So I brought over, you know, say 10 bucks and I really only had like five pounds to play with, you know? So it was like, it was really expensive to live there. Um, but I lived on a flat with a bunch of, um, Folks from Greece and some from Nigeria, and like there's a lot of people in this one area. And we'd have these huge meals on Sunday and Saturday. Big, big. I mean, like 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 thirty people there. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody got wind that it came from a baking family. I was like, oh, the baker, bake us bread. So every weekend that we'd have these big events, I was on the hook to bake all the bread for it out of these tiny little ovens and stuff. So I would spend you know all Friday. you know, baking all this bread for our Saturday dinner or something. You know, that
0: sounds that sounds like magic. How did you wind up going to England for for graphic design? That's not a common career path.
1: No, no. Um, well, I guess in so I went to school in Chico and um, uh, the design program through there, and I really. I enjoyed reading about design, you know, critique, you know, design critique, because I, I wasn't good at it. I wanted to know how to create, to critique design better and how to discuss it, you know, like the idea of discussing design was, was super interesting to me. Yeah. Um, Philosophical and, level. Yeah. And there was a, um, uh, a, a, an author, his name was Paul Stiff, um, who I, I kind of gravitated to all these different essays and things that he wrote and I loved his writing style and his perspective and how blunt he was with his design critique like this is crap but this is why you know <laughs> um, and, and that sort of thing I was like I, I I guess I just connected with his writing style like who is this guy is weird and it was different from everybody else's design writing at the time you know so I um, looked this guy up he taught a program at the University of Writing Department of Typography and um I sent them an email and said, "Hey, uh, do you have any like continuing education programs, things like that, going on?" And it's like, "Yeah, hey, we're starting up this uh, information design program, and um, if you want, you can apply." And, um, and I was one of three people that got accepted into this program, and um, shipped myself over there. And-
0: when you went to this design program. That sounds a little bit obsessive. That you would just love this guy who write. I mean, the writings of this guy. Email them, and then they say, "Yeah, there's three people coming." And then you go over there, and it's not even like a practicum course. It's not. You're not learning how to design so much, but you're going over to think about it, critique it. Um, That's. are Are you kind of an obsessive guy? Also, bakers. Bakers kind of tend to be obsessive in my experience.
1: I, I wouldn't call myself obsessive, but if you're uh, to ask my wife, she'd be like, <clears throat> <laughs> I don't know anybody more obsessive than you. I mean, I, I go down rabbit holes, like nobody's business. And, um, I, I guess I am, I am, I really am. And like, yeah. if I get interested in something, I want to know everything I can find out about that thing. Yeah. And it's really helped a lot with baking and, um, farming and all this stuff because i i just have this never-ending quest for knowledge and like how things work and how to make things better and um and it's applying design thinking to a baking world is kind of my perspective on things and Mm -hmm. um and it's it's worked pretty well for me you know and um it satisfies and scratches all my obsessive itches i guess
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i i I love, um, I am rabbit hole. I mean, I can go down rabbit holes too easily, especially the internet has just, you know, it's been such an enabler for that kind of thing. Um, but I always think of people, uh, who are obsessive like that. Also, you could, you know, you could frame it just as they're super curious. Um, and I'm looking at you with all those guitars behind you, which is how many five, on a rack,
1: Six, seven. <laughs>
0: a bunch more laying around. So, um, people who are very curious often are, you know, on the on the artful and artistic side of things. Is that a part of who you are too?
1: Yeah, I uh, play music. I paint. Um, I uh, I love to draw. I love to like sculpt things. I love working with my hands. Mm-hmm. I love building things and working on stuff. You know, and I have an old car, I got a whole little art room set up, cool. I have my music area, you know, I have a bakery and like, I have these things that all like fuel my, my creative needs. Yeah. You know? yeah.
0: I want to take a minute to tell you a little bit about one of my sponsors. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality products and exceptional customer service. Community-owned Slow Food Co-op buys from local producers, ensuring they offer their customers real and sustainable food. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and environmentally sustainable packaging. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. So when when did you take over as the boss?
1: Well, I'm not really the boss.
0: <laughs> oh, let's set the record straight. So, what are you exactly?
1: Um, I. It's funny, like when I'm filling out things for work, um, you know, like forms or contracts. You know, they always ask for your title, right? I always put Grease Man in there. I'm just a Grease Man for the company. I just I make stuff happen. Get into the tight spots and. And figure things out and, and you know it's if we have a, like a new business we want to get into or something to analyze it's you know whether it's web-based bakery based or you know uh, finished production um, we just open a cookie bakery and we're looking at doing a pizza adventure and all these things I so got all these things going on it's like I go in there and I figure it out um, So I kind of think of myself as a bit of a grease man within our company
0: and kind of a fixer
1: a fixer of sorts, yeah. I can't fix everything, um, that's, that's hard. But I, and, and this is, I guess, where some of my design thinking comes in, where I can just, I know who to talk to or how to look at problems from different angles to, to help fix it,
0: you
1: Yeah. Know. It's, it's kind of a good application, even though I'm not like, physically pushing pixels anymore. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can still apply the thinking to a different uh, discipline.
0: Yeah, for and sure. And it works
1: really well with bread, too. Bread is like, oh, I mean, to me, like designing breads, so this is why I love R&D. It's like my favorite part of my job is, uh, you know, f- you know, having a customer come and say, hey, can you help me design a bread menu? You know, mm-hmm. and or I, I need this. I need a sprouted grain bread that um, is cost effective and will work on this line and this and that. So I, I can get in there and, you know, figure out what the, the brief for the product is um and then um figure out all and basically design it design the bread you know from from beginning to end until it's rolling off of the the end of the line and getting bagged and shipped off in truckloads um or just in a single bag
0: yeah um, that's so and that that reminds me of um your baking history you have some serious awards and accolades there tell me about those
1: um I don't have many awards. I guess I have more of uh, uh, participation awards. Yes, yet. yes. Um, uh, so my, my first award or my first competition I entered was um, the California Raisin Bread Competition back in 2013.
0: Or the raisin bread competition.
1: Okay, they used to have a um, the raisin California uh, Raisin Board would put on a, a competition every year at this trade show. Um, Actually, it was every three years? I think it was, Every two years, or three. Um, can't remember. Um, at a trade show, and they'd have a, a few different categories, um, and basically, you'd have to, the only requirement is that this baked good um, have a X amount of percentage of raisins in it to help promote the use of raisins.
0: I love that. I that is awesome. <laughs> I love raisins. Not everybody. I mean, it's a hugely polarizing thing. I yeah. eat them. Every day. Love it.
1: You know, I gave out a bunch of raisins on Halloween, you know, and then little packets. You, you know, didn't. And, well, I, we had candy too, but for the health conscious, you know, we had raisins available, you know, should you desire them.
0: You became and that guy, the guy who gives out raisins.
1: I, exactly. I was that guy. <laughs> but, you know, it, and it's funny because it's love or hate. It's like, yes, yeah. or ugh. <laughs> you know, it's either or. Truly. It's
0: yeah. We actually named, we got two kittens, uh, over the summer and one of them is named oatmeal and one of them is named raisin. That's fantastic. I agree. I'm oh. so glad we agree on this because not everyone does anyway. So raisin bread competition, you have to use X amount of raisins, which God bless you, California raisin board. That's a great way to do it.
1: It was pretty cool. And um, well, something wasn't working right because it was the last year they had the competition. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes in the Raisin Board. And yeah, I just imagine, you know, like the California Raisin guys, the big characters, you know, like duking it out, and, like having an argument and like throwing the whole competition out.
0: Raisins, once again, know. controversial.
1: It's so controversial.
0: Yeah. So what was this bread that you that you made? I mean, what was was it like a sweet bread or was it a sourdough that 11 bread that had it in there?
1: It was a sourdough it was, I guess would be considered an artisan bread. Um you know, it had some uh creative uh um scoring and stenciling on it. You know, I had created this stencil with a, um the state of California with uh a, a vine of grapes overlaid on it. What? So it was a pretty complicated stencil over the top of it, which was really neat. So it was a California raisin. Yeah. And um it was you know, the idea of, you know, raisins are sun-dried, right? You know, so it's, um, it was uh, the Raisin of the Sun was the name of the bread.
0: Yeah.
1: And it looked, the bread was kind of um, medallion or oval shaped. Yeah. Um, but it was to kind of speak to the sun. The scoring mimicked uh, the rays of the sun. And then, of course, you have the California thing on it. And it was... I mean, it had two different you know, types of pre ferments in there. You had a sourdough pre ferment and a pouliche, and I had this, uh, uh, I think it was a uh, bourbon soaked raisin and thyme Ugh. lemon uh, uh, soaker in it. It had a percentage of sprouted grain. I mean, it was just kind of this super hearty but really light um, uh, bread that had a ton of raisins in it. Like, yeah. I think it was like, the minimum was like 30 percent raisins I think I put 60 percent raisins or fifty percent raisins it was a large amount of raisins in there and um, I ended up winning the grand prize for that for that year was it different um, than
0: any of the other competitors
1: oh yeah yeah everybody was doing more traditional baked goods for um, you know either production minded stuff you know yeah. like a large production like put this in a pan and go type stuff with the
0: or, icing on top and the swirl and that yeah.
1: Kind yeah. Yep. Yeah. Insert traditional raisin stuff just done really well. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of wonderful entries and like, I mean, people do some great stuff at these competitions yeah. and it's, and it's, it could be very humbling. Um, but also it's very rewarding too. You have all these peers that are, you know, in this, um, one, one competitive world, but competitive baking world. Um, and some of them are like industry professionals, and they're all if they all agree that, well, this is really good. I mean, that's like, it feels good to be selected for, for that, sure. You know? for sure. Um, but just to be at that stage is is and to be selected to to perform and to compete at that level is great. Hmm. Um, and then fast forward to I guess twenty sixteen. Well, a couple years before, because it's a couple year process, um, I got to compete at the World Cup in Paris in 2016. What? It was another competition. Um,
0: What's it like? To, what is it? Explain what the, um, what that team is. How does it form and what does it do?
1: Well, it's, um, so the Britt Bakers Guild of America is um, a wonderful organization that promotes Education within uh, the bread baking community, whether it's industrial or artisan, whatever it is, um, both home and professional, um, and they sponsor and uh, members of the um, of the guild help select a, a team or put together a team that competes every four years at um, this trade show in uh, Paris called Europan, mm-hmm. and the competition is called the Coupe de Man de la Boulangerie. The world cup of burgers um and um and there's a series of competitions and selections like you have to one apply to it and then two you have to send in some formulas and then from that you're selected to come to a regional competition and then after that you're if you make it to the next level you go comp- compete again you know and the, and the groups just get smaller and smaller and smaller until they finally pick it and there's three components there's the artistic component Mm -hmm. which is a bread sculpture big beautiful all you know 100 percent edible you know a meter and a half high Mm -hmm. you know big old thing and there's a vinoiserie component and then there's the um, baguette and specialty bread so Mm -hmm. um, I was applying and made the team for the baguette and specialty bread
0: nice uh, nice are those sculptures I'm assuming they're edible do they taste good
1: you don't eat them. You don't want to, um, but you can. But if, you, you're an, uh, if you're on an island and you needed some calories, you, I mean. You just, you, you but
0: eat you're it. not going to die from eating it.
1: No, no, okay. no, I mean, it's all, you know, a lot of rye flour and wheat flours and um, uh, glucose syrups as glue. And, you know, it's everything's all edible on it.
0: Yeah. Are you, how does that affect you? But I'm sorry, I do want to come back to you. Um, the the bread team, but I also am always curious. How has COVID affected you in your personal life? Do you have to work from home a lot, or
1: I do yeah? yeah. And um, so yeah, I set up a home office when this whole thing hit. You know, I work at home every once in a while anyway. Except you know, fifty percent in my office or bakery, and fifty percent traveling typically mm-hmm. uh, per month. <clears throat> And so I would spend a lot of time at home and really working or prepping for jobs I needed to go do. Um, and so I had a space already, but then I had a kid in this too, <laughs> my, my wife and I, yeah, in June, um, we had a baby uh, and, and that was crazy and that really rocked our personal life, you know uh because we were gonna have it in the hospital but then of course covid hit and you know was so like okay we need to find a birthing center and then go to the birthing center and then a bunch of complications happened there and so we had to go back to a hospital but they at the time they weren't letting um significant others in there oh, i've
0: heard uh, about that i've heard that that was a thing which i can't even imagine That
1: yeah. was brutal but then um they had just lifted that like right before. So I was able to go in and uh, up in Santa Rosa, they had a, a midwifery program up there too, which was really nice. So it was very comfortable for us. And um, Ariel gave birth to a beautiful boy, little Massimo Vincent Giusto.
0: Oh my gosh, the most Italian thing I've ever heard. Massimo, which means like big and maximum, right? But he's this little guy, I'm sure.
1: He's got a lot to live up to I guess
0: oh well what's it been like being a new dad in a pandemic
1: that was kind of the beginning of the real stress because you know you have a baby you want a bunch of people to come see them and hold them and you need help you need the meal train you need a family to, to descend in and even though it's kind of a pain in the butt sometimes you want it you need it yeah. you know to have a little reprieve, we had none of that, none of that, so it was just Ariel and I, and we had some occasional visitors, but it was, you know, masked, gloves, and that sort of thing, because we're talking June, late June, early July, you know, everything was still kind of like, we don't know what the heck's going on, and, you know, mm. it's just super quarantining, and, like, my mom still hasn't met him yet, she's been stuck down in Houston, oh. Ariel's dad, who lives in Paris, like, he hasn't been able to come over because of travel restrictions, yeah. Um, and you know just, it's just been really difficult you know um, mm-hmm. on that level so there's a lot of friends and family that have missed the early weeks and months of of this little guy's existence And mm-hmm. but thank goodness for the internet you know we use the Tiny Beans the Tiny Beans application and constantly uploading pictures and so everybody gets to see what's going on so they get to kind of see the day, uh, the daily progression of all this but it's been really sad, you know, to mm. especially to not have some core family. And you can sense through their voices or through video chat that they really want to be there. They want to hold on. And they mm. are not going to get that. You yeah. Know, bummer, so.
0: And I applaud you for saying so. A lot of the time, you ask somebody how it's going and they're like, it's good, fine. You know, a lot of people want to just, um, I don't know. No, nobody wants to complain. And yet there's a really important place for being real about, especially having a new baby, um, being very real about the difficulty and, um, gosh, your, your parents not being able to come. Uh, and this is time that you can't necessarily get back. You can't get back. I'm just hoping that, um, things open up for you and they can make it up, you know, in more time when he, especially when he can remember it too
1: thank you for saying that. And I hope so too. I really do.
0: Yeah. So you say that Ariel's dad is in Paris. Is she French?
1: Yes. Yeah. She was born in Paris. Um, but she came over to the States at an early age. Um, but her dad moved back to Paris and then she moved back, um, around uh, the college years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she's fluent, um, speaking and you know, knows, knows this place pretty well. And Uh, Which is helpful when I go over the competitions, or you know, I do. We have some partnerships with some other mills that are in and around Paris, too, so that helps out, you know, for translation and for sure a place to stay (laughs) when we go there. But who knows when we'll be able to go back over there again? I don't know,
0: I know, I know the travel thing is for sure bugging us. Um, Yeah. yeah. We were supposed to go to Japan. My brother lives there, and we were supposed to go and then tack that on with a trip to Bali. And I just don't think that's going to happen this spring. Yeah, I loved you. So do I. In fact, oh, I'm so glad I'm remembering this. I don't love seafood. No shame there. Trying not to have any shame there. Um, but in Japan, the bakeries, the traditional like French and Dutch bakeries, are phenomenal.
1: Yes, yeah, they really are. They really are. And they do excellent work. It's their attention to craft and discipline um yeah. and um they're just really good at it. They
0: really- are. I and I read, you know, before I went to Japan this is oh I got 15 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. I tried to do, you know, curious and obsessive like you, I did all my homework before we went and I discovered that Japan would open its doors to the West often and then shut them and be like, no, we don't want the West anymore. And then it would open the doors and then it would shut them all throughout history. The only Western influence that they allowed to stay and come and go was the Dutch because they were traders and they had some essential things that the Japanese needed. So that's when Anderson's Bakery really got, you know, established in Japan. And really? it just continues to this day. There's this phenomenal attention to craft, like you say. But it's something about the bread and that Japanese um, attention to detail is really magical there. I lived on bread the whole time I was there. Ugh.
1: No shame in that.
0: No shame in that. Do you ever feel like you've eaten too much bread? Be real. No? No.
1: time but I mean you got to balance it out because it's I mean it's hard eating bread all the time but if you focus mainly on whole grain and long fermentation bread and run a lot like I do then Mm. it works out just fine
0: and it works out yeah tell me a little bit about the um just what it was like to experience that sourdough boom I know you talked about you know sales and all of that but what did it feel like when you're seeing it on Instagram and you're hearing about it on news shows and just that demand for the exact thing that you make
1: it was really exciting it's, i mean because people are paying attention to something that i obsess over and love and it's great and, and i don't know it's it got you know bread has been given a bad rap for so long you know to have so many so many people like ah bread's fun and awesome and tastes great And it's like all right bread's back you know not that it ever went away in my eyes but in general in America's diet. It really has. It's been, you know, know, burned at the stake a few times, unfortunately. Sure
0: has. Why do you think it came back? Why do you, why do you think that happened during, um, you know, March, April when the pandemic hit?
1: You know, I don't know the exact reason other than, you know, the, the shelves were empty, you know, it was hard to get bread. what was available on the show it was flour um yeast was pretty scarce um people had a lot of time they were at home um feeling crafty feeling bored um and needing a hobby and i think it just progressed from there and i mean really when you break it down even the people that demonize the bread they absolutely love bread you know like you read wheat belly you know and it's like i love bread you know this i gonna miss this blah 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 but You know, and and even the people that hate it, love it, the smell of it, it's like, you can't can't not like bread, really, it's impossible.
0: No, you cannot dislike it, for sure. Staff of life, one of those ancient foods that, um, you know, I'm probably being completely off base here, but something, another staff of life, like rice. Um, You know, other than the different varieties And it's still basically you soak it in water, you heat it with water and maybe you treat it differently. Like whether that's a risotto or, um, or like sushi rice or something like that, but it's still pretty much like not super tweakable. Watch. I'll get the rice board on my back about this, (laughs) but with bread also an ancient text messages right now. (laughs) (laughs) They've got your number, the rice board. Um, But something also, this ancient food that is so variable and still so many people trying to like crack the code on bread. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which, it's so funny to me. Like I, we're alluding to like some like um, a code, you know, a lot of people like hold their formulas a secret. You know, it's like, what do you do? Very secretive about these things, you know, it's like, come on, I mean, it's like one of the oldest things that we've, like, humans have produced, you know, like, combining grain and water, and somehow bread happens, you know, it's like, nothing has changed, you know, and, um, and I, I'm of that perspective anyway, so I was just like, hey, like, whatever I'm doing now, I did not create it, I did not come up with it, I may have stumbled onto it, and don't know anybody else in my circle that has tried this, but I would never claim you know, ownership that I created this. Yes. Know, maybe I put these two things together and made something a little different. But so, I mean, to me, it's like all my formulas, everything we do, it's all free. You know, it's yeah. like when people come to us for technical support, formulas, it's like here, take it, take it. You want me to design you something, sure Here it is. Right on. Go, run with it.
0: That's cool. So, That's cool.
1: And 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 I know you've heard this before, but bread is super subjective too. um uh, it's you know some people love certain flavor profiles and some people don't people get really personal with it too yeah. so it's like, oh, well, horrible bread you know and the other person's like oh that's the best bread on the planet yes. you know you know and it, it, that's another funny thing about bread you know it's like the the politics around it the um the the opinions the secrety or secretiveness of it the uh um, but also the giving of it, you know it means so many things um, and i don't know it's the philosophy of bread is super interesting
0: it is I totally agree, and as you're talking i 'm realizing when we talk about bread, I guess like the difference between talking about rice and talking about bread is there's this x factor with the yeast you know rice doesn't it's rice and water with. Bread yes it's bread and water but there's this X factor this like magical uh, mysterious thing that makes it happen you don't see and and so then I'm thinking well same with wine same with beer it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole with any of those things and the and the key is that fermentation you don't hear people getting super passionate about baking soda you know now now are you getting messages from the baking soda board <laughs>
1: Murray is like, what are you guys talking
0: about? <laughs> well, sorry. But it's true. I don't ever hear anybody getting really excited about baking powder, baking soda and what it does. But you do hear people getting really passionate about yeast and products that ferment. And I think it's because we still can't totally harness it. You know, you it can't,
1: it's different. It's true. Really, it's it's alive, it's it's a, it's a lion that has a bazillion personalities, you know, and it can be super gentle and super kind and might be somewhat consistent, but it can also be a total wild animal and you're like, what the heck just happened, you know. There's mm-hmm. still talk to production bakeries that make the same exact bread every single day with the same process and every once in a while they'll get a curveball, like, well, mm-hmm. the bread is doing this today, weird, yeah. you know, they change. You know, and it's like a drop in barometric pressure, a you know, slight rise in the warehouse temperature or, you know, someone, you know, put 50 more grams of flour in the starter, you know, feed or whatever it might be. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's just like one little thing can trigger this chain reaction that changes the product and you got to figure it out. Like, what the heck happened? And, I mean, yeah. It's super interesting. It's and
0: and super frustrating, too. I think about the game of golf and how frustrating that can be. Um, and it it reminds me of there's this really, really fancy Thanksgiving dinner my husband and I were invited to once. And I thought I would be, um, I would go big or go home. And I decided to make Parker House rolls, like, just, you know, naturally leavened. And it all went so badly. Um, I mean, they just never rose. And, you know, we're down to like 45 minutes before we have to leave. And there is no motion on these rolls. And I baked them anyway (laughs) and brought them. And they were, people were so kind to eat them, but they were more like crackers really than.
1: (laughs) But I'm sure they absorbed gravy. Okay.
0: They were fine in that regard, but just the frustration of something not rising. It just, nothing gets me more irked than that. Do you have any really good failure stories that you could tell?
1: Oh yeah. Wow. Geez. Um, let's see. Here's a good one. Um, in competition, um, one of my first, uh, uh, competitions i i forgot to put the yeast in my um my baguette polish um just forgot and, and for, well i mean you're paying attention to eight other breads so you know nine breads total you know so it's easy to forget if you're if you're not hyper organized and how you do things and super structured when you're doing that many things in a really short period of time yes. it's easy to forget something you know especially when you're young and you excited and you're just like getting into it you know mm-hmm. and you, you haven't figured out all that stuff yet you know and you just freak it up at the east and oh crap you know mm-hmm. it's the next day you're like your poolish is like not moved and you gotta make the bread to to, to finish out the competition you know so it's you go into problem solving mode from there and, and I got it to come out never told anybody about it the judges thought it was everything was fine you know you no way to, you just figure it out. You know, you do a straight dough, you manipulate your temperatures to get whatever flavor profile that you're, you're shooting for. And just made it happen. Wow.
0: Um, I think you, you misunderstood me. I'm asking for failure stories. (laughs) Well, (laughs) No, I'm just kidding.
1: That sounds like
0: a success, a triumph. Really?
1: It was a failure and then a success. Right. Right. Um, Let's see. Oh, here's actually here's a failure. Um so I was doing this. And this is still a mystery too. This this one, I still have no clue what the heck happened. Mm-hmm. This big bakery down in Southern California. Um, and I mean this this place is a bread machine. They have four massive bread lines that run 24 hours a day and they just make bread all day long. And they're mixed size, I'm mean, huge, huge mixers that are just, the size of like two SUVs glued together. Wow. Um and they do a dough that's around two you know, thousand pounds. And and we're doing this specialty bread, like getting this bread program up and running. So it's a bread that this line has never made before. Um, and uh put it through Mixed out fine, everything's good. Comes out and this you know, goes into the big dough troll. Goes up into the big divider. Gets cranked up there, and I'm like looking at watching the dough go through the the rounder, and something wasn't right. And we're talking two thousand pounds of dough of organic flour, organic ingredients, or oh. molasses and honey. And I mean, this is not a cheap dough. I mean, we're, we're burning you know a couple thousand dollars here. Oh. You know? And I'm just watching this thing like like, oh, oh, there's something wrong, there's something not right in this bread, like the dough just does not look right going through this rounder, and so goes through the rest of the process, and everything goes into the pans, goes into the proof box, and I'm sweating bullets, I'm sweating sweating, sweating, you know, I'm just like, oh gosh, you know, like, I mean, all the people that are involved, I mean, there's like 10 people on the line, the logistics of getting the flour there, all the office staff with the lot numbers, and like coordinating all the, I mean, there was like a lot of people touching this project, you know, yeah. and for it to me to open the door, the proof box, and like look in there, and <laughs> the bread's not moving at all. It's like your Parker House story, but like Steaks. it's just like your Parker House story.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not because we're talking about uh, two thousand pounds of dough, and uh, you know, yeah, just lots of stuff on the line. So it wasn't did you ever figure out why? You don't know why.
1: No clue, no clue. But they ran it through the oven anyway and it of course it came out like little pucks, you know, it's like like mm. no nothing. I don't I don't know. I wasn't around when they did the scaling of all the ingredients, so something could have been the scale, but couldn't figure it out. Horrible. So life, but we ran the same dough the next day, um, and it came out perfect. Well same, same ingredients, same everything. We don't know what the heck happened, but that was a big failure there,
0: and you just lost. Uh, you know, it was only enough money to pay for like a used Honda Civic. That's
1: all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's the reality of industrial bread, though. You know, it's like like when you're trying to get a new project up and running, you can scale it up so far before you got to hit the big switch. You know, yeah. you hit that big switch. There's no turning back. No. And, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, um, I always that's- ask. What the last thing you, if you had the choice, you knew you were going to die tomorrow, what would you eat?
1: You know, it's funny. I knew you were going to ask this question and I was listening to, um, I already had my answer picked out too. And then I listened to, um, your conversation with Dan. Yeah.
0: What did he say? I can't remember.
1: Well, he said, and I I don't know if it was jokingly or if he was serious about it. Um, um, but, uh, it was Bronshwein. Oh, brunch, that's you know, right. A, a liverwurst sandwich, and I'm like, I crave those like nobody's business.
0: Really? You know?
1: Yeah, my mom used to make them for me when I was younger. Uh, liverwurst sandwich on a sprouted nine-grain bread. There's nothing like it. Yeah. There's nothing like it. And I was like, oh, that's gonna be my meal. You know, like for when I have this conversation with you. And then he said it, and I mean, there were so many parallels with the conversation with Andrew. He's an artist. And yes. He's this you know like all this stuff you know I'm like, oh god that guy's cool do I'm
0: you like, know no, him No.
1: I don't
0: know. oh my gosh i would love to introduce you he lives around the corner from me and he is i i have no favorites of conversations on this podcast but his was um a really enjoyable just a wonderful person and um i have a feeling you two could have a lot in common yeah
1: he's he seems like a, a really cool dude and we have a lot of parallels in our life for sure.
0: So, if it wasn't going to be Liverwurst, what would it be?
1: It's a dish I call the perfect breakfast. Yes. Uh, and it's, uh, it's an arugula salad with lemon as the dressing, a little olive oil on it, soft scrambled eggs, and a piece of toast. Oh,
0: arugula, ma'am. Yeah. Love it's it. A,
1: but it's just that little combination It's light, satisfying. It just ticks all the boxes. It's simple and you can make it in three minutes and that's it. Nice. You know, call it the perfect breakfast thing. I could do that. Um, but there's one thing that does trump that. That mm. um, would be just a bowl of pesto. I could eat pesto until the cows come home. Just not on anything. It could be on something. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It could be on pasta. It could be on whatever. But I could just eat a bowl of pesto.
0: I could do that too. When my husband and I lived in Italy for a while and we stayed on different farms with different families and and one of the families that we stayed with made fun of us for how much we loved pesto because, you know, it's intensely regional there. In some areas, I mean, they all know about pesto, but you don't necessarily eat pesto in, say, Tuscany. If you're a, you know, if you're heritage Tuscan and you've lived there, your families lived there forever. Um, yeah, this this woman was like, what's, what's up with Americans in pesto? I mean, we like it here, but it's this really niche sauce that's really only supposed to be made up in the, what is it, the northwestern corner. Uh,
1: Liguria.
0: Yeah, Liguria. And so anyway, they just howled at us for loving pesto, but it is, there's something magic that happens in that.
1: It is, yeah. And I w- I've always loved it, but our family still has a bakery there in, in Cogoletto, um and i was visiting them and um albertina um who's a second or third cousin i can't remember where the bloodline goes on that but she she runs the bakery the rosilino bakery Pasatria there and um she made me this pesto while we were there and i was just like i fell in love with it even deeper i was just like oh this is this is my Being, (laughs) you know, it's like, I I had to like cut myself to see if there was like pesto coming out. (laughs) It was really good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Love it. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for talking to me. I know you're so busy, especially with that new baby boy, but, um, it's fun to talk industrial bread and artisan bread with you.
1: Gosh, I have so much more to say. I wish we had a longer podcast. I feel like I just scratched the surface of so many stories, you know, and things, you know about our company and what we do and what I do and
0: well stuff, but that's, that's because up. you're an obsessive curious person there's never enough time
1: never enough time that's right thank you it's been a pleasure thank you very much jamie. of course
0: thanks for tuning in to consumed hosted by me jamie lewis and edited by chris lambert You know, this season marks my 70th interview with California Tastemakers, and I continue to feel lucky for getting to speak with so many cool people about flavor. As we move into 2021, please continue to lean into your local independent businesses wherever you are. They will need your support more than ever this winter. Thanks for listening and see you next time.